Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. Using the story of Isaac from Genesis chapter 26 of redigging the wells his enemies had filled with rubble, we've begun to explore the need on our parts to remove the rubble from the wells of our salvation. That full water of life Christ would pour onto us and from us is restricted because our enemy has filled the well with garbage. We're talking about personal and corporate revival. We must get back to the spring of full life in Christ. But first, we have to remove the rubble that's in the well. And before we'll do that, we have to be desperate for the life that is in that well. Today we consider how God would make us desperate for His fullness in our lives. How God would make us desperate for revival. When Isaac came to that well and he saw that the enemies had forced rubble into it, although he may have known that in the past there had been water and there had been streams underneath all that rubble, he wasn't secure in his past knowledge. He wasn't secure that he had a theological understanding of where the water was. He wasn't secure until he could himself dip his hands into that moisture and feel it springing up and know that maybe the spring had dried up. Maybe the reason rubble was there was it was just a hazard that was being filled to keep someone from falling in it because there was nothing of value in it anymore. What does he know? Unless he's able to drink from it again. And so he's desperate and he's passionate. He's giving all that he can to get down, to get to that water again. And so you can picture him and his servants gathering around and getting on their knees and pitching in their buckets and drawing out the dirt and the rubble and casting it aside until the water springs forth once again. Listen, we've been saying for the last 20-some years or 30-some years, we need revival. It's a cliche in the church. But if we were really believing that it was necessary, we'd be in our knees a lot more, wouldn't we? We'd be given to a passionate, longing prayer. We would be seeking to extract from our own lives the rubble that interferes with the flow of the Spirit of God through our lives, into the lives of our children, into the lives of our land. We would ask the Holy Spirit to do the excruciating work of being a searchlight into our own nature, into our own being, to find out if there's any wicked way in us in order that He might lead us in the way everlasting. There would be anxiety. There would be desperation. There would be angst. If you go and you look at the lives of the great biographies of great Christian men, which I'm in the habit of doing and I would encourage you to do as well, you'll discover that the testimony of these men is that there was a moment of time in which they came to Christ and they began to draw from this well of salvation, but there also was in their life a confidence to go on in their own flesh, in their own power. And they came to an experience that Paul came to in Romans chapter 7, where Paul's looking over his own fleshly abilities and Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? In other words, what happened in their life was there came a moment in which they became absolutely desperate and there grew in their life this anxious desire and desperation for 
something that they could not assume was theirs simply because they had given their life to Christ. You'll see this in the life of John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress and Grace Abounding, the Chief of Sinners. You'll see it in the life of John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist Church. You'll see it in Hudson Taylor, who was the director of the China Inland Mission, and Oswald Chambers, who wrote that devotional classic, My Utmost for His Highest, or Andrew Murray, who's one of the greatest devotional writers ever. You'll read their stories, and you can read in others as well, and you see this similar expression. There is the story of the day in which they came through the experiences of salvation, where they were awakened, and they repented, and they believed, and they turned to follow Christ, and they received regenerate life. But you also see that they wandered off into the world in their own power, in their own flesh, into the land of the Philistines, and something happened in their life. They began to be desperate, desperate to get back to the wells of their salvation, desperate to get back to the experience that was theirs when they first came to Christ. It seems as if this pattern is one that God lets be repeated over and over and over again. I want to look with you at the way in which they came to this point of recognizing this need and being desperate for it. And it was only at that point when they recognized the need and became desperate for it that God responded by opening up those wells to them again. We're going to, in the future, be talking about what the rubble is in that well that we need to take out one by one. But before we talk about all those things, what's the use if there's not a recognition of need and there's not a desperation? What you'll discover is after they gave their life to Christ first, when they came to Him, when they believed in Him, after salvation, a new longing began to stir up in their lives. They longed to be holy. That is the hallmark of the born-again man or woman. They want to be holy. At salvation, they drank from this well and realized the justifying power of the Lord Jesus Christ to wash away and cleanse them from all their sins and the penalty of their sins. And they began to realize His regenerating work inside of them, moving within them to bring them to have power over the very present activity of sin in their life. That's the desire to be holy. And this new life of regeneration brought within them a conviction that grew. And the conviction was, the desire was, that they would live obedient lives to the glory of God. They felt sin not less. They felt sin more. And they wanted to have victory over it. They were more acquainted and more aware of their sin as, than ever before. And they wanted to be more like the Lord Jesus and less like themselves. Less like what was in the impulse of their flesh. They wanted to live a life of holiness. Bishop J.C. Ryle gives us a definition of holiness in a book that he wrote called Holiness. I recommend it for you. I've rephrased it a little bit. I've taken the liberty to rewrite his statement here, but here is a statement on holiness from Bishop J.C. Ryle, who wrote in the mid-1800s. True holiness is not made up of only believing and feeling. It is also made up of doing and putting into practice. It is a practical working out of the active and passive grace of God in our lives. In other words, the Lord Jesus comes passively and He washes me and cleanses me by grace. He gives me what I can't earn for myself. But in receiving that passive work of grace where I'm just an object that He pours over His cleansing in His life, He also at that moment pours in an active impulse of grace that wants me and pushes me and propels me into a life of holiness. So he says it's the practical working out of the active and passive grace of God in our lives. What we say, 
how we feel, our attitudes, our thoughts, the expressions of our natural desires and passions, what attracts our attention, our conduct as parents, our conduct as children, our conduct as bosses and employees, our conduct as husbands and wives, our conducts as leaders and followers, how we dress, how we use our time at work and in pleasure, how we behave in business, how we act when we are sick, how we act when we are healthy, when we are rich, and when we are in poverty. All of these things are matters which are fully communicated to us in Scripture, not in generalities, but in specific instruction, and these are the practical matters of holiness. These are the practical matters of Christ-likeness. So when these individuals came to Christ, they had springing up within them. It was the commitment of the converted born-again man or woman. They longed to be holy in this way. They longed that their life might express a greater and greater territory one, expanding out a greater and greater expression of Christ's likeness from within them. But it was just here that the desperation and angst began to grow in their lives. It's just here that the desperate desire began to build up in their lives. For they found out, all of them, that they were in themselves dreadful failures in this endeavor to be holy. Now, if people would have looked at them, they would have thought, well, these people are actually doing quite well. They're actually excelling. Boy, they're far beyond us. And it's true. Their contemporaries looked along and thought they were wonderful individuals. We're not talking about gross immorality here. But they found that they still couldn't get victory over their own tempers and their own desires and their own temptations. They oftentimes struggled in the finer points of motive with selfishness and pride and impatience and an unloving spirit, even as they pushed the battle lines hard against sin and by most of our standards far excelled what our expectations are for individuals and Christians nowadays. We'd say, boy, they were very virtuous people. They themselves saw themselves as utter failures in the pursuit of holiness. And so, the desperation began to grow. Here's what happened next. In this pursuit to live holy lives, recognizing that they couldn't accomplish this in and of themselves, they begin to avail themselves of what are called the common means of grace. What that means is they began to avail themselves of the things that God has set before us that are ways or pathways through which we enter into a fuller expression of His gracious life that God gives us to give us power over sin. Here are things that are common means of grace. Prayer. And so they began to pray more. Reading your Bible is a common means of grace, and so they began to read their Bibles a lot. Fellowship in the local body and with other Christians. Going to church, they began to do that. Receiving the preaching and teaching of God's Word by Spirit-taught and Spirit-gifted men. And they subjected themselves to that, and they pursued, and they sought to come under the influence of men like that. The sacraments of baptism and communion, and they got baptized, and they celebrated with the body the communion meal on a regular basis. Sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. They even began to do that. Sharing the gospel with other people. Serving God, serving the body, doing the expressions of the giftedness that God had given them. They did all of those things. These are all the common means or pathways through which we come into and we come to points where God expresses grace to us so that we can grow. And so they began to pour themselves in the pursuit of living holy lives into these common expressions of grace, these common ways of grace, 
Yet, even though they prayed more and read their Bible more and were in the church more than anybody else and they were given to works, service to God, and they would even proclaim the gospel and all this only increased their angst and their feeling of desperation and desire. Now, why? You know, we have come up with an idea now in discipleship in the Christian church that discipleship is simply making people productive people in our bodies. We give them tasks and jobs to do. We just make sure if they're just reading their Bible, if we know they're praying, you know, five minutes a day or before they go to bed at night and they're being good people and they know how to share the gospel, this is a disciple. Well, these individuals were doing all these things far beyond how we've excelled at discipling people nowadays and it wasn't enough for them. They were still desperate. Why? Well, because the means of grace is not grace itself. The means of grace, the way into grace, is not grace in itself. There is no, listen to me, there is no grace in prayer. It's only a way into grace. There is no grace in reading your Bible. It's only a way into the grace of God, the free gift of God's life. There is no grace in fellowship even with one another. It's only a way through which we come into the presence of God to experience His grace. And these individuals had hoped that coming into these means of grace, they would find the power for holiness, and they didn't find it in these things. So where is this Christian life, this principle of power and abounding life found, if not in our desire to be holy, if not in the common means of grace? Well, it's found in Christ, but it's only found through that desire and through those means. Still, they're not ends in themselves, are they? They're only pathways to Christ alone. You've been listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this message, just call us at 208 331-4096. Until the next time, may God bless you.